the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. And welcome to the latest edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today was with Dr. Natalie Kiefer. Dr. Kiefer received her PhD in Curriculum and Instruction with a cognate in Anthropology from the University of South Florida. While earning her PhD, Dr. Kiefer taught high school social studies for 10 years in Tampa, Florida. In her first year of teaching, Dr. Kiefer was a nominated finalist for the Florida Council for Social Studies New Social Studies Teacher of the Year for the State of Florida. Dr. Kiefer's research and scholarly interests include educational anthropology, poverty in education, experiential methods in social studies instruction, and global citizenship education. Dr. Kiefer was a 2016 recipient of the Louisiana Educational Research Association Raima Harsher Outstanding Research Paper Award. She also teaches K-12 social studies methods, graduate and undergraduate courses in diversity for educators and classroom management. If you like what you're hearing, please connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, or follow us on Twitter, at intersectioned. We also appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Without any more introduction, here is my conversation with Dr. Natalie Kiefer. Well, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Kiefer. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's jump right into it and talk about how you originally came to be a teacher. What were some of the early experiences that led you to being a teacher, the education profession? Well, actually, both my parents were teachers uh, when I was growing up, and I told myself that I was never going to be a teacher because they were always home when I was home, and there was just so much educational stuff going on in my house that I wanted to do something else. I ended up falling in love with anthropology when I was a college student, and I had my BA in anthropology, and after I finished my degree, you know, my parents were still kind of needling me to be a teacher because they thought I had a good kind of skill set for that. I'm, I'm definitely a people person. And eventually I said, well, what are you going to do with a bachelor's degree in anthropology? Maybe I should uh, go and get a master's degree in curriculum and instruction in education um, in secondary ed. And so I did. I figured I'd be able to teach world history and find a way to be able to communicate anthropology and my passion for anthropology to young people. So it ended up being something that really worked well for me. I remember one of my first classes, a professor said to me, you can't go into teaching because you love your content. You have to go into it because you love young people. And I went, uh, (laughs) I guess we're going to see whether or not this, this works for me. I wasn't totally sure. But I ended up being really passionate about young people and um, the content that I was teaching as well. And I I found a real niche. I taught for 10 years in Hillsborough County, Florida, which is a rather large school district in the state of Florida. And I ended up writing the anthropology curriculum 
I wrote the sociology curriculum and I did a lot of uh, training in uh, teaching AP human geography and helping new teachers who were teaching AP human geography. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, it's kind of, you know, that's, that's how I ended up there. Yeah. It sounds like you're passionate about it. It sounds like you were having um, a good time fulfilling. What made you think about moving and transitioning from the classroom into a more academic setting such as the university? Um, well, I'd always wanted to get my PhD. It was something that was kind of like a long-term goal of mine that, that I, I've always wanted to achieve. And I joke around that I, you know, was working on my master's degree in curriculum and instruction and I just never stopped taking classes. I transitioned kind of seamlessly into the PhD program and I loved doing research. I love writing, And so it just seemed like a natural progression for me in terms of, you know, meeting small to medium term goals and then meeting this larger term goal in my life to get my PhD. And actually, by the time I started writing my dissertation, I loved teaching in the classroom so much. I was starting to think, well, if I don't love research, then maybe I'll just stay in the classroom. But through working on uh, my dissertation and working through the PhD, I really learned that this was something that, that was a great fit for me. And I still miss teaching high school social (laughs) studies. I miss my kids. I always joke around that I would love to have two more weeks in my classroom. Um, But I kind of get my fix by working with the secondary ed social studies interns that I work with now. Right. Now, you're at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and and, and I'm not really particularly uh, familiar with it. I know that they've got a little bit of an uh, Acadian portion, which is is very Canadian. But what are some of the things – maybe tell me a little bit about it and some of the interesting things you're doing in education up there. Well, we are. UL Lafayette is the home of the Ragin' Cajuns. Go Cajuns. And – one of the wonderful things about UL Lafayette is that it has such an interesting cultural milieu. There's um, Cajun music, language, food, dance. I work a lot with a living history museum that um, represents Native American, Creole, um, and uh, Cajun culture. So just that whole excitement of, of being in this area and the, the real cultural uniqueness of it was something that drew me to the university in and of itself. Um, and of course there's, there's a fair amount of French spoken here as well, which I do believe we're going to be getting into in just a minute. But in terms of education, I do a lot of research in poverty studies and educational anthropology, and Louisiana has a high poverty rate. 33% of all um, school-aged children are living in poverty in our state. And so um, in kind of an unfortunate way, that certainly gives me job security here. And there's also uh, French immersion schools here. We import, I think, something like 170 teachers every year to teach in the French immersion schools from France and Belgium. And I think they were attracted to me as a candidate specifically because I do speak, uh, I speak French fairly well. (laughs) And so I've, I've been able to work on my poverty studies here. I've been able to get involved in French immersion and social studies. And then I also do a lot of work in mindfulness. I'm also a, a certified yoga teacher as well. I'm I'm actually really impressed with with the range of topics you cover. I know I was looking at some of your uh, research online, and 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 wow, yeah, it sounds really interesting. Um, let's start with with the first one that you kind of mentioned, which was the educational 
anthropology. I am concerned that some people might not exactly know what that is. Can you define how you see educational anthropology and maybe talk about some of the specific topics that you've looked at recently? Okay. Well, educational anthropology is not a very common field in education. And that's unfortunate because anthropologists are largely known for kind of being in in charge of this whole concept of culture in and of itself. But like uh, Gloria Ladson Billings would say, culture oftentimes in education is used to explain a wide variety of different things that we really don't quite understand. Or people who don't really know what culture is will say, oh, it's that student's culture. It's that student's culture. That's why they behave the way that they do. Um, But this gets us into trouble, especially in high poverty areas, because a lot of people believe that there's this culture of poverty, that people who live in impoverished areas have a kind of a, um, a monolithic, as, as um, Paul Gorski would say, culture where um, it's something that reproduces itself. But what we really know is that people who are living in poverty come from very diverse backgrounds. And it's not really actually culture. It's more of an economic thing. It's more of the fact that people living in poverty lack access to um, high quality education, housing, health care, especially in the United States, and and a wide variety of different education things. But it's not necessarily culture with a big C in terms of like North American culture, right? Anglo or Franco-based culture or or values, attitudes, beliefs. So we, we share a lot of things in common that are cultural, um, but people living in poverty, what they what they do have in common is not necessarily cultural. It's so diverse. It's actually more economic. And now as applied to education, we can certainly look at culturally relevant pedagogy and how to make our, our curriculum relevant to our students, how to make it reflective of their realities. And, and a lot of the stuff that Geneva Gay would say um, is connected to finding ways to make students' experiences part of the curriculum so that they see that relevancy. I'm also interested in looking at the funds of knowledge approach that comes out of the University of Arizona, where we train pre-service teachers and in-service teachers to become basically anthropological researchers in their own backyard, where they get to learn about the assets that their students have. Because oftentimes, teachers will focus on the negative if they have a student who's living in poverty. For example, they'll say they lack this, they lack this, they don't have this. And in focusing on the negative, they fail to see all the positive aspects in lower income communities, such as, for example, um, rich histories, rich language background, um, very strong social networks. But if all you're doing is focusing on the negative with your students, then you're not seeing the whole picture. And I think that if you're seeing your students in a very negative way, if, I mean, if you're seeing the world in a very negative way, that's the world that you tend to live in. Yeah. So I work a lot with teachers in this area and with pre-service teachers to be able to help them identify the assets that their students have and to draw on those assets in order to be able to make the curriculum relevant and in order to be able to connect with their students. It sounds really hopeful what you're doing because you're saying yeah. that this is not um, ingrained, this is not part of who they are, this is um, more of an economic um temporary but hopefully um, situation and so I, I love that aspect because it is brings that hope I also yep. like the idea that you're looking at those assets now that seems to me at times very site specific 
do you have some tricks or some some um, advice for people who are going out who want to identify the particular assets of their students in their community? How would you go about knowing how perhaps their community, which is, you know, maybe in Lafayette, because I imagine that they might have very different assets than, let's say, a community in the Canadian North, who's perhaps uh, an Inuit community, or even, you know, downtown of a large city. How would you go about identifying those? I would say get to know the communities that you teach in. You certainly don't have to live in the community that you teach in, but I would say what you could do would be referred to as a windshield ethnography, where you look into the history of the community, you look into the language background, the the beliefs that people have about religion, the beliefs that they have about nature, the economically based skills that they have as well. Um, we tend to see poor people or people living in poverty in a very unidimensional way. But if you really get to know the students that you're working with and their families, you find out that there's, there's a lot more going on. So I would say get to know your students and spend a lot more time than we do. It's not just simply like doing a couple of warm up activities at the beginning of the school year, find out, you know, like where the really good ethnic restaurants are, find out who, um, who's in the center of the social network in the neighborhoods and what assets they have. Yeah. <clears throat> so windshield ethnography. Um, yeah. That's, that's probably what I would suggest. Probably the easiest one. Now I know that uh, your work, it, it brings it not only to teachers, but you often talk about um, helping students um, kind of think reflectively, critically about social problems. I think it's very related to what you're talking about, um, about, you know, this, this difference between seeing it as cultural and seeing these assets. And I think I read somewhere is, um, you know, how to, how to take meaningful action to end poverty, discrimination, and violence. And so this is now teaching teachers to help students to, to do these things that we, that we, I, I hope we all aspire to. What are some of the effective ways that you've found to develop these skills with students? How do we get them to think critically and be these global citizens to fight against some of these injustice type issues? We really need to work on perspective taking with our students and being able to help them to be able to, you know, kind of walk a mile in another person's shoes or, or have an understanding of, of what the, the experiences that other people have that are different than them. There are a lot of teachers, especially in the United States, who are who come from white and middle class backgrounds, but more and more our students are coming from minority backgrounds and non-middle class backgrounds. So perspective taking is key, not just for pre-service teachers, but also for students. And I think that this is really connected with mindfulness because it's not just, um, you know, helping them to be sympathetic to people whose lives are different than them. It's, it's cultivating empathy and mindfulness is really good at doing that. I, I think there's a lot of critical thinking that goes into that. Um, but helping students and helping pre-service teachers with perspective taking act activities that help to activate the emotional and the effective domain so that they can imagine in a life that's different than the ones that they've grown up in and the ones that they've lived. Yeah. There's, there's also a lot of like, um, I, I, one of the studies that I'm working on right now, looking at some graduate students who are in my diversity and ed course is there's a lot of, of emotions that get conjured up and stirred up. And I do some analysis of discourse 
And I found that there's some um, relying on anecdotal evidence, for example, instead of looking at the big picture that that sometimes leads to these very myopic views. And I think that teachers oftentimes will get defensive. Same thing with students when their beliefs are challenged. But mindfulness is helpful because it allows people to be able to be aware of these negative emotions when they um, when they arise and when they bubble to the surface identify them and then be able to say, okay, so how can I sit with this uncomfortable feeling, still be comfortable with it and start to crack open that nut of what is the real knowledge that I can gain from not only my own reaction, but also, um, what the literature tells us and what we know about people who come from backgrounds that are vastly different than our own. I am very interested in the whole practice of mindfulness, and I would absolutely agree that this is this is probably something that's um, not as much explored and not as much used. I imagine you don't take this really highly controversial topic and say, "Hey, folks, uh, this is a really great time to try mindfulness." How are some? What are some ways that you introduce the practice of mindfulness, or that you 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 have found successful, um, so that they have a basis of knowledge before? Or they get to this uh, more uncomfortable type of process. Uh, how do you start small in a classroom, and especially maybe even in a high school, where some of these kids are just going to say, "Ah, it's not for me." Too, too, uh, whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, I sponsored the mindfulness club at my high school when I was there for many years. And I thought that I was going to get a very different population than I did that would join the, that join the mindfulness club. I had students in my AP human geography class and I used mindfulness techniques like a mindful minute and some basic sitting and, and breathing exercises to help them out with cognitive focus and stress reduction. And they totally bought into that because high school students need a little bit less stress in their life. And I thought that I was going to get more of like a type A personality kind of a student that wanted to, you know, be per- perfect and was struggling with those types of issues. But what I found out that I I actually ended up getting was a lot of the male students who were struggling with their own behavior in the class that wanted to join my mindfulness club. Uh, I had one student come to me one day saying, Oh my gosh, Kiefer, Dr. Kiefer, this is great. It worked. It worked. It worked. And I, and I said to him, I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I did what you said. I got into the car with my mom. She started yelling at me. And instead of me saying something back to her that would get me grounded over the weekend, I just focused on my breath and I didn't get grounded. And he was one of these kind of social ringleaders. And he brought his friends to the mindfulness club. And we did all kinds of fun activities from making like Zen rock gardens to doing eating meditations, simple meditations. We did types of reflective art activities. And these kids really gobbled it up. So you can start off with doing mindfulness in a very, once again, non-confrontational way and then move into mindfulness for social justice when you can get into some things related to visualizations, um, cultivation of empathy and a practice of, of sending and receiving emotions, you know, when students are feeling negative emotions to get them to be able to handle it. And I find that these transfer really well from high school students to college students. The day after the, um, shooting in Charleston, there was a, 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 a shooting at a church in Charleston when I first got here about four years ago. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do when I go in to teach my college students tomorrow? 
because it was fresh in everybody's mind. And I was teaching a diversity course and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have us do a, a five minute sitting meditation where I do a visualization and walk them through it. And then we'll talk about it. And I found that it was really effective. So start small, start with like a mindful minute and explain to them the benefits of it from a psychological perspective, and then start to weave in some things that are particularly related to a social justice content. Still on the topic of social justice, but maybe moving away from mindfulness is I know that um, you work with students um, in their own backgrounds. So how to, you know, look at poverty and discrimination in their school or in their community, but you also focus on this idea of global citizenship. And I know that they're, right. they're linked, um, but, but what are some of the things that you've um, done to, to then take that local context and really push it out so that they're looking globally at these same issues? Um, I would once again say perspective taking. Students have a tendency to think that everybody is just like them in their own kind of local environment. And... I've done some visualizations and I've had them look at case studies of people, especially when you're talking about high school students, sharing with them case studies about what, what a young person who uh, is about their age and what their life would be like on a day-to-day basis. So I've done some stuff with looking at um, children and access to water and how that impacts um, young girls' ability to be able to get an education in Africa, for example. I've done some work with human rights violations around the world and analyzing the United Nations um, Declaration of Human Rights for a Child and how we can use experiential activities, which are great at activating the effective domain and I think are very mindful and using those in order to facilitate perspective taking and getting them to see that, you know, especially, you know, when I taught in, in Florida, you know, not everybody speaks English. There are people who speak, there are a lot of people who are bilingual in the United States as in Canada. And, you know, people have a, a different worldview and experiential activities, I think, are really good for that. I bet. I love, and case studies. I love two things that you said. I love how... Many of the same ways to approach local problems are the same that you approach global problems. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, and I also love this idea because we talk a lot about mindfulness is just calming and behavior management and anxiety reduction. And you're actually talking it about building empathy for some of these other larger social justice issues and using that as a platform. And I find that that's, that's like, 2.0. It's like, wow, there's minimum mm-hmm. is anxiety and yeah, you're a better person, but now we can actually use it to attack some curricular pieces, which I think is really mm-hmm. interesting. Mindfulness is great for getting people to be able to work with negative emotions that get conjured up in your mind because there's this element of not being judgmental about them, but just accepting them for what they are and then saying, okay, I'm, I'm experiencing these negative emotions, whether it's defensiveness, whether it's sadness, whether it's this sense of, of, of anger due to injustice. So how can I take these negative emotions and transform them into something that's positive? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> We, we talked a little bit about French immersion before and, yep. uh, and, and let's start <laughs> from the very beginning because, uh, we haven't talked too much about French immersion on this podcast, but we've got a couple guests coming up. Um, Great. maybe, maybe you want to talk about what does French immersion look like as a program down in Louisiana and talk about 
how it's going? Is, is it a growing program? Um, is it valued? Mm-hmm. What kind of things? Mm-hmm. What's the context right now for French immersion in, in maybe the southern United States, but Louisiana particularly? Well, in Louisiana particularly, because we, we are part of, of the you know, new France, we're, we're part of the Francophone world. Um, there was a generation gap where French and other languages were banned in schools. So I think it happened in like 1910, right around um, the time of World War One, where we had a real kind of speak English movement that swept through public schooling in the United States. And it wasn't just in this area. German was stamped out in Pennsylvania and other areas where minorities' languages were stamped out. And because of the fact we have such a deeply entrenched um, Cajun history here, as well as, as, as Creole, a lot of parents have been sad that that element of their heritage was lost. So we see a lot of people, you know, in generation X, um, and, and the baby boomers, they don't speak French, but their grandparents do. And because of that, that language and that culture loss, right? Because language is such a, a, a hallmark for culture, the parents are actually pretty militant that their children learn how to speak French. So we have, um, just in my neighborhood, an elementary school that's all French. That's and, great. Yeah. Immersion or francophone? Um, so the kids coming, so the kids coming there don't speak French and then they learn French at school then, Hey, they learn French at school. Yeah. And like I said, we import a lot of teachers from France and Belgium, but we're starting a new masters in arts and teaching program in French immersion at UL Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And it's because we have, we now have a critical mass of homegrown French speakers who were taught in the immersion programs here that have grown up and they want to become French immersion teachers. So I think I see that in the future, we're still going to be importing um teachers from france and belgium but we're going to be able to produce more and more of our own uh, french immersion teachers because they they grew up in this area and i'm excited um i'm really excited about it it's wonderful to have these neighborhood schools here that have these thriving french immersion programs and at the school just right down the street from me they uh took their fifth grade students to martinique just this past summer and have, and we have, even here at UL Lafayette, uh, begun a, a relationship with the Université des Antilles de la Guyane. I, two summers ago, was in Martinique doing some research on ideas of citizenship in the Francophone Americas and, and all that kind of stuff. So these relationships are growing. And we also use St. Anne University up in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. um, for um, some of the people in this area who want to improve their French a little bit more. So we, we see that these real strong kind of connections exist because of, of the fact that we're part of the Francophone Americas. That's, that's really exciting. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we, we sometimes get, <laughs> we sometimes think that we're the only ones doing this whole French immersion. Do you find that, that and you mentioned this because there, um, French was not the only language to be banned. Do you see a groundswell of other languages, um, where there's an immersion type program building? Do you see that with maybe mm-hmm. Spanish and things like that as well? Yep. Great. We have we have at least one Spanish immersion program here, and yeah. um, t- a couple of my colleagues and I actually have a, a rather hefty grant to start, um, and we actually have started over this last year a dual uh, immersion program here in and around Lafayette Parish, where not only are we working on developing students' second language skills, but I'm also doing some asset-based training for the teachers as well, because, cool. you know, Students coming in into high poverty schools, they tend to have deficit-based perspectives. 
and working with students whose first language may not be English, you know, they, they could use a little bit of extra help with that. So um, this grant that we got from the Department of Education is really helping to develop second language skills in this area. And I think now more so than ever, we're starting to really understand more about the benefits of being bilingual. I was at um, a, a language immersion conference a few years ago, and I remember seeing a bumper sticker that said, monolingualism is the illiteracy of like the, the 22nd century or something like that. <laughs> I was like, that's really controversial, but I like it. Um, yeah. I love it too. Um, let's, let's move away from some of your particular areas of study and, and we'll get into education a bit more generally. Um, is there something about education that you believe is true that m- some people or most people might disagree with you on? Um, so I know that in education, especially in the United States, there's a lot of focus on standardized testing and a lot of teachers get burnout. One of the things I always tell my pre-service teachers the care and nurture of the bureaucracy is never going to go away. You just have to learn how to handle it and then focus on what you love. So yes, you're given this curriculum. You're told that you need to do all of these things. But at the end of the day, you're an educated professional. And what you need to do is figure out how to prioritize all that care and nurture of the bureaucracy and then close the door to your classroom and do what you know is right and do what you love. Um, I also, and this is one of the things that I tell my students that sometimes can get a little bit controversial, is I talk to them about the importance of um, capitalizing on students' language in the classroom, especially students who speak non-standard dialect. And instead of correcting students' language, I think one of the best things to do is model um, language, especially if you have some particular things you want students to do. One example that I see oftentimes is teachers correcting students, you know, can I go to the bathroom? I don't know. Can you go to the bathroom? Like that kind of a thing. And my response is always like, why would you pick that as a battle? You know, I can't think of any student who has ever said, oh, I really appreciated the fact that my students called me out in front of all of my peers just because I asked, can I go to the bathroom? We all know what they're asking. And as long as you're upholding the basic rules of communicability, I don't see a problem with it. If you choose to make that something that you want to correct with students, just model it back to them. Don't call them out on it. So I think that it's it's important to remember that language like Gloria Anzalduo would say, is twin skin to identity. We are our language. And one of my favorite quotes from her is, so if you really want to hurt me, speak badly about my language. Language is twin skin to identity. I am my language. And I just, I think that we need to teach students the importance of speaking the language of power so that when they enter into the job market, they can get a job and they have that skill set. But I also think that we have to remember that language is always changing and it certainly opens up a wonderful arena for us to be able to play with our kids. If we can teach them how to play with language and and how to have fun with, with words, because words can be pretty fun. Absolutely. And I find, uh, especially now in the age of uh, technology and techno language, I learn just as much from them as I, as they learn from me. Oh, yeah. Uh, next question. When you think of the term master teacher, what comes to mind? Is there a person? Is there a, a set of values? Is there a set of criteria? Um, what do you think of? I think about the importance of mentorship. So when you're starting off, if you're a new teacher, find a mentor, somebody that does what you want them, that that is doing good at their school, right? And 
and seek those people out. Somebody who has experience, but not always, you know, experience. There are some teachers who are experienced that maybe aren't so good as teachers who have a little bit less experience, but also passion as well. And I think these are also teachers that understand the importance of relationships with their students. Yeah, that's a common answer that I'm getting. And I think that that's really transects no matter what you're teaching or no matter where you are, it's that idea of passion and that idea of relationships. Yeah. Next question. Let's say we teaching was easy. Um, Uh, Let's say we, yeah, I know I get a lot of pushback on that one, but I'm trying to get at, let's say we reduced teaching to its most fundamental and we only concentrated on that, which we thought got us the most value, the most progress. And we left everything else out what would teaching look like? What would the school day look like? Um, I think that we would see more of a focus on uh, mindfulness in schools and teaching students about emotional intelligence, teaching them about how to be able to um, learn to form positive relationships with authority figures, learn to focus on their psychosocial well-being. One of the things I think is, you know, you remember your teachers for the relationships that you had with them and for who they were as a person. When I was a high school teacher, and I mean, even now to a certain extent, my, my students aren't going to remember the content that I taught them as much as they're going to remember the fact that I was a teacher that was compassionate and that cared and that took the time to be able to um, really work with them. And I think that that's the most important thing. We can get rid of of standardized testing. I would even say that we can get rid of grades to a certain extent. But if we focused on psychosocial well-being and if we focused on helping students to be able to form positive relationships with other people and to be able to think good about themselves and follow their own interests, then the world would be a much better place. Absolutely. We're going to get into the lightning round, and so I'm going to ask you for some quick hitter questions. Okay. Um, First one, what is your favorite education-related app or website? I really like the flipped lessons that you can do on the TED-Ed website where students and teachers can create their own lessons and then use those as springboards to be able to teach in the classroom. That's, that's an activity that my students and I always have fun doing when I pull them into the computer lab is designing that um, particular instructional strategy. What's a book that you quote or refer to or have marked up or gift uh, the most or quite a lot? Um, well, I already talked a little bit about Gloria Anzaldúa, and I, I really like that quote uh, about her in language. Oh, books, man. I've got issues with books. I think there are way too many. Funds <laughs> of Knowledge, um, the Funds of Knowledge book from um, Luis Gonzalez, uh, Mall. That's a really good one. And that one talks a lot about asset-based perspectives and, and challenging this notion of a culture of poverty through looking at at the, the positive things that, that people have in, in communities. And I'm looking over here at my bookshelf right now, <laughs> and I could just rail off a whole list of them. But I'd have to say that Funds of Knowledge is one of my favorites. That's great. What's something that you do every day or most days that keeps you healthy and well? Uh, mindfulness and yoga. Yeah. Do you do that on your own? Do you do a class? Do you use an app? Do you how do you how well, do you particularly do that? 
I find ways to sneak mindfulness in every day. It's mindfulness is not something where you necessarily have to sit down on a cushion. It's something where you have to check in with yourself and, and see how you're doing. In terms of yoga, I'm a certified yoga instructor. So I try to take classes and have a little bit of a home practice. But I teach yoga out of my house. Uh, and I used to teach at the Student Athletic Center. But now I'm, I just have some clients that I, I teach out of the house. And I once again, find ways to sneak yoga into my life on a regular basis. That's great. What's an organization or person who's inspiring you right now? And this is going to sound really cheesy, but I always get inspiration from my students. Yeah. They're, they just they bring me a lot of joy and they inspire me and they challenge me to be a better teacher and to be a better professor and to be a better researcher. That's great. So what are some of the things that you're looking at next? What are the next projects you're working on? You talked about a couple grants that you're doing some work on. What, uh, what can we look from, from, for from you in the next couple <laughs> months or years? Or, or Yeah. Well, I'm actually um, doing some of this asset-based ethnographic work with this grant that I've got right now. And, and I've been analyzing some discourse and looking at the ways that teachers use language to talk about um, the students that they teach. So I'm, I'm getting into some work with linguistic anthropology and education now. Um, I'm hoping to be working on a social studies methods book for French immersion teachers because we have a lot of language immersion pedagogy out there, but we don't have language immersion pedagogy that's specific to social studies. I'm also interested, once again, in looking at conceptions of citizenship between the United States, France, and Canada, how they're different, how they're the same. Um, including the Caribbean, because, you know, Martinique is a, is a former colony and they have a different relationship with what they would refer to as the metropole, which is Paris, which here in the United States and in Canada, we just don't have. So that that's something that that's interesting to me. I want to work more with, with the French immersion and, and social studies. And I'm doing some, um, study, I'm doing a study right now on mindfulness with my social studies methods students to see how they think mindfulness can help teach citizenship as well as social justice based content. That sounds really exciting. If people want to follow along, what's the best way to kind of connect with you or keep up to date with what you're you're working on? They can always email me at kieferna at louisiana.edu, and I'm available on Facebook. So That's great. Well, thanks so much for speaking to us today, Dr. Kiefer. I'm excited for those projects you talked about, and uh, yeah, I'll be be keeping up and, and seeing what comes from them. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. That's it for my conversation with Dr. Natalie Kiefer. If you like what you're hearing, please connect with Intersection Education on our website or on Twitter. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.